Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarin. The Shmada Kid. Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarin. Joined, as always... By a man who has bragging rights because he said the Patriots would be all whatever and he's too classy to say anything about the fact that he called this correctly, Dan (laughs) Baker. DB, what you got to say for yourself? You want to get paid. That's what you want to say. Yeah, that's what he wants to say. Pull out the wallet, Zyron. I know, no. But you know what? We got to discuss that. Joined as always by the coach, Kevin Nunn. How you doing, coach? My man. Hey, before we get started, before you pull out your wallet. You know what day what day what day this is in boxing lore? Tell me. Fortieth anniversary of Thrill in Manila. Today is the fortieth anniversary yes, of Thrill in yes, Manila. Sir. October one, nineteen seventy five. You know I, I know have about so Ali. much to say about the Thrill in Manila. Mm. We can do a whole section about the Thrill mm-hmm. in Manila. We got a hell of a show this Good week. Later on, we're gonna be talking to Richard Lapchick, the Ooh, legendary one of my favorites. human rights activist Richard hey. Lapchick, sports and politics activist Richard Lapchick. I got you. Legend. I'm looking forward to it. Legend, Richard Lapchick. No question. And he recently no wrote question. a brilliant column about his decades-long friendship with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. which was a response to another column written about Kareem in New York Times Magazine, where Kareem came off, frankly, as kind of like genius aloof, is how the column made him come off. Like, oh. very intelligent, but extremely cold. Mm. And the uh, piece by Lapchick was kind of like, whoa, 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 hit the brakes. You got the intelligent part right, but the person I know mm-hmm. you know, could not be a more dear human being. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to talk to him about that because obviously sometimes there's a huge gap between someone's public and private persona. Mm-hmm. And it would be great to talk to Richard Lapchick yes, about that. Sir. We've had Cream as a guest on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited about what Richard has to say. Uh, we're also going to go over the Bryce Harper, Jonathan Papelbon ah. fracas. And you better believe, Coach, <laughs> I'm comparing that to Spreewell. Oh, and DJ Carlissimo. Wrong. Not, not, no comparison. Not, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk about it. it. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Right. And 
Uh, we're at the end of the show. I'm going to ask you guys. No, you're going to pull advice. out your wallet and pay this man. No, I know. We'll talk about that. But I, I know <laughs> I, I got your back money, there. But, you know um, what I, mean? I got your back there, DC. Listen, <laughs> this weekend I'm going to San Antonio with John Carlos, and we're speaking to the San Antonio Spurs. What? Popovich invited Whoa. us. Whoa, man, what a show! Let's do this thing. We got to talk. I need advice. <laughs> I need advice from us. Yes. Okay. That'll be the whole second section of the show. Advice. Okay. All right. Hey, we'll be back after this. <laughs> Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin will return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. I'm Dave Zirin, joined by the coach, Kevin Gutt. How you doing, coach? Mommy. So today is October the 1st, and tomorrow on October the 2nd, 2015, I am going to be on an 8.15 a.m. flight, hurricane willing, mm-hmm. uh, from Dulles International Airport mm-hmm. to whatever the airport is in San Antonio, not sure what it's called, where I am going to speak to the San Antonio Spurs with John Carlos, 1968 Olympian who I wrote a book with, The John Carlos Story. Now... Yep. I got so I want to ask for advice. I've got so many thoughts about this. I've never been asked to address an NBA team before. I mean, I've addressed the rookies before. I addressed the union once, mm-hmm. but this is going to be apparently in the film room itself, like where they meet and watch the film during training camp. And it's kind of a crazy story. And I guess I just want some advice about how to comport myself. Uh, you might remember that uh, John Carlos and I, when we gave a talk in New York City with Cornell West. Very randomly, Greg Popovich was in the crowd. Like we had no idea he was going to be in the crowd. He just showed up. The, the players lockout. I mean, the the yeah, the owners lockout mm-hmm. of the players was happening at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, this was fall of 2011, and and there Pop is like in the crowd. And he was going to go. He said to a play on Broadway with his daughter. But then he saw like in a, in a little magazine ad that we were doing this event and he sent his daughter to the play and told her to call a friend. And he was just like, I had to see this. And I said, why, if you don't mind me asking? And he said, because I felt like when they raised their fists in Mexico City, it was the most electric thing that I'd ever seen. He said he was mm. 1968. He was in the military at the time. Mm. And this act of resistance to him was the most energizing, incredible thing that he'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible statement for mm-hmm. him to, to for him to say that, yes, and it sir. also it pointed out to me. I've told that story many times because a lot of people think that that gesture in 1968 split the country along racial lines, but it's in a lot of ways even more accurate to say it split the country along generational lines, mm-hmm. because there were a lot of young white folks who were part of the movement who loved it, a lot of young white folks who weren't part of the movement like Pop but who saw it and were like, yeah, this speaks to my impatience about the world. And there were a lot of older black folks who thought it was absolutely outrageous that they did such a thing, including John Carlos's own father, who mm-hmm. was on his uh, deathbed at the time and was shocked at his son's actions. And, mm. and so th- there's a generational story that's there, too, that Popovich in a lot of ways represents. So he asked us to... He said to us at the time, he, that, that that night it was really special. Like He bought books for everybody on the team and got us to sign them. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'd love to have you guys come down and speak to the team. That's what he said to us. And we were kind of like, yeah, cool. We'd love to. And John Carlos really liked him a lot. And I have to tell you, I liked Popovich a lot, like mm-hmm. meeting him that night. Mm-hmm. He spent some time talking to a really good friend of mine from high school. 
and uh, just talking hoops with him. Mm-hmm. And you know, people have this. I think the number one thing people think of when you say Greg Popovich, in addition to obviously the success, is how brusque he is with reporters. Mm-hmm. And he was actually really nice talking basketball with my friend, like mm-hmm. off to the side. And it, mm-hmm. for my, I mean, Pop probably doesn't even remember doing it. And my friend was said, who's a basketball junkie, said it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. <laughs> yeah, to him. Sure. So giving that of himself was pretty amazing. And a couple of months ago. We get a call. Uh, I get an email saying Greg Popovich wants your cell phone number, and I was like, okay. So I emailed it, and then he gave me a ring, and he said not only did he want us to come in, but he wanted us to come in Friday so he could take us out to dinner, mm. and then Saturday we speak to the team, and then Saturday evening uh, we go out to dinner with him and the assistant coaches. Wow! And I'm and we get to spend the day in the complex before we speak to the team, watching practice and whatnot. Right. Right, and so I need advice, coach. Wait, wait. He didn't tell you what to what he what he, what he wanted to talk. He just wants you to talk about. I I don't know. I, th- I assume the dinner we're going to talk about that. Right. Um I assume I'll just introduce John and let John do what he does. Well, that's the point. But like, I was asking. I mean, I mean, should I like crack a joke? I mean, do you crack a joke when you're talking to Manu? Be desiring, man. Tim be Duncan, and Tony Parker. You have to. You have to. <laughs> should I be, be like, hey, I was a center. I was five foot ten. <laughs> yeah, five, yeah, five foot nine, center from the Bronx in Manhattan or wherever, wherever it is. You don't care where. So what do you think, Coach? And, be and like, yourself, and also, man. what do I wear, man? Like, like when you're at like at the practice, should I wear like a suit or should I keep it more chill than no, that? No, a sweatsuit, man. Just come in there, you know what I mean? Chill. Yeah, yeah your latest Jordans on, and uh, you chill. know, yeah, be yourself, Dave. You're a great guy. He, he's having you on there to be yourself. He's not having you to come in there and be uh, Brent Musburger or anybody. Be you yourself. <laughs> Put him out. Or, or dress like Pat Riley. Is a Space Jam uniform out of the question? Spa- Space Jam threads? But it is crazy to think about for a second. Yeah, it, that's it, awesome. It's Tim Duncan. It's Manu Ginobili. Yeah. It's David West. It's yeah. Tony Parker. It's Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. It's uh, Matt Bonner. It's well, Dave, think about it. When they write Patty the, Mills. When they write the story of the 2015-2016 San Antonio Spurs, because this is obviously going back-to-back. That's something they struggle with, and with the Warriors last year, they didn't. So what you say— And getting LaMarcus has, Aldridge, has a good who will chance, also be there. Exactly. You have a good chance of inspiring them to their next NBA title, and what's going to go down in NBA lore? That's what— Damn. <laughs> I, now you just about. made me more nervous. I wasn't <laughs> well, thinking about it like that. Uh, 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 I think Dan's being a little sarcastic. <laughs> no, I know he's not. I don't think he is. But you may not get in, have to worry about it too much because, you know— Mr. John can talk, so <laughs> right. But that's the thing is that I would go. do I would do an intro for John. Okay, like if I'm speaking yeah. for more than ten minutes, I'm doing yeah. something wrong. Yeah, and I can't see how these guys and that, especially that collection of guys. You know, those, these these guys are uh, aware cats, so they're they're going to be in awe of John. You worry about you being in awe of them, and what do you say to them? They're going to be in awe of you guys coming in there. You know, you wrote the book, and there's John Carlos. They these guys are not your typical NBA guys that just know about. The AAU teammates and what's latest, what's going on on Facebook. These guys are not going to notice me, and I shouldn't paint a picture, a picture like that. But these guys are going to know history. They're going to know. Well, about what do we Carl. know? I know mean, I've been really situation. thinking about this. What do we know? We know that, and I know that David West, for example, new guy on the team, is a very politically aware cat. Yeah, I know that just from his yeah. Twitter feed. Yeah. Um, that and that matters, you know. Now, so I was just thinking about that a lot. David West. I don't know Matt Bonner, but I know his brother Luke Bonner, and Luke is a very politically right. aware cat. Right. Um, Tim Duncan is Tim Duncan. I mean, so you you, you can see I mean, the way he carries. You talking about Kareem Duncan's in that Kareem yeah, mode. Yeah, Duncan's of just in being that Kareem mode. Perception kind of big guy. thinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. somebody who takes care of his body. And, and I think Pop knows that. That's why he you know he invited you in because he knows that 
what you guys have to say is going to resonate with his people. And uh, let me let me read you this. It's going to be an educational experience for I all. I looked up who the assistant coaches were, the ones we'd be taking. Out to, I'm just going to say these names to you. And honestly, there's only one name I'm very familiar with, and you're going to know who that is in a second, obviously. Mm-hmm. But tell me, if, just say me if you've heard of any of these folks. There's Ettore Messina. Of course not. Ime Udoka. That sounds familiar. Udoka was a college player. Okay. James Borejo. I don't know James. This is his coaching staff? Yes, this is assistant coaches. And wow. Obviously, he's got people from around the world. Yeah. It's, it's pop. Yeah. Chip England. Yeah, Chip England played college ball. He was a jump shooting guard. If it's Went the to thing Duke. Where, huh? Yeah, that's what he's six, about 6'4". Six, yeah, okay. something like that. I remember. I, yeah, he didn't play much, but he was at Duke. Yeah. Chad Forcier. No, no, Ring a bell. Nope. Will Sevening. Mm-mm. No idea. And then the name, all y'all going to know. Becky Hammond. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I'm very yeah. excited to meet yeah. Becky Hammond. Right. Like, extremely excited. Right. Um, she's such a trailblazer, groundbreaker. And James Borejo, I know he's very good friends with a friend of the show, Laron Prophet. Mm-hmm. I was LeRon, texting Laron about it, and he was yeah. like, you got to tell James Borejo. I said, what's up? So, I mean, I, I'm going to be going out to dinner. I should probably, like, look him up and no. get familiar. Dang. Am I overthinking this? No, yes, you are. Yeah, you wouldn't I'm, be, I'm, I'm, you wouldn't no. be a tad on no. the nervous side? No, I'm a no, little nervous. no, 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 no. No, uh-uh. I'm not. No, I'm I'm, that, that that autograph seeking. Ooh, my days are over. I mean, I we got so a lot, of, a lot I should, of respect. I I'm glad, for glad to be your presence. Should I ask for selfies? You should ask for wine. <laughs> I should ask for wine. And the lesson of wine does, is pop. Has a legendary love for wine. Doesn't he have a winery? See, that's good. You're 12 here. This is amazing. Look, I'm just glad, (laughs) even for that little tidbit from Dan. Dan's already been more helpful than you. With all of your with all of your verbal droppings. Dan was more helpful. Okay, so Pop likes wine. That's good to know. Pop the cork with Pop. You're not picking up the check. Well, no, he's going to tell. I'm sure he's going to give you a valuable lesson. I think that. Oh, was my message. Oh, and one last thing. Just yeah. just want to put this out there just in case anybody's even asking this question uh-huh. is, you know, they offered me um, a speaking fee and I told I turned it down. I said just get me there. Yeah, that's the kind of guy you are. And I said yeah. Yeah, if there's if the if that's money in the budget, give it to John Carlos. Right. But it, it partly it's because it's John's story and partly it's because, you know, I got to cover these cats. Right. So, right. I'm not taking money. Yeah. But I'm happy for this. You're a good guy. And I'll be reporting on this next week. I'm sure. Hey, we got to go to break. <laughs> uh, we'll be back after this. What? Don't move. Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. Joined by the coach, Kevin Nutt. How you doing, coach? My man. All right, so let's talk about what happened on Fan Appreciation Day at National (laughs) Spark. I'm sure, folks, unless you've been living in Dick Cheney's bunker, you know what happened. But let me break it down for you. Uh, Mighty quick. It's the second-to-last home game of the season, and insanely disappointing season by the Washington Nationals, who most people predicted to, at the very least, win their division. Mm -hmm. And Bryce Harper, the team superstar, 22 years old, (laughs) flies out to left field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Relief pitcher Jonathan Papelbon, who, by the way, has been just a— not a train wreck, but it, he's pretty much the symbol of when things started to go downhill for this team when they traded for him in midseason. He approaches Bryce Harper in the dugout, says he should have run out the fly ball. Bryce Harper says some words back. Papelbon, in full view of the cameras, grabs him by the throat and pushes him up against the wall. My goodness. Now, what's been interesting about this coach, what I find mm-hmm. fascinating, mm-hmm. is that you see a, a very interesting split 
with DC media and fans on one side and a lot of players speaking anonymously on the other. It's fascinating. DC media and fans basically saying that Jonathan Papelbon should be drawn and quartered like Braveheart <laughs> and that they hate him and get him out of here and all that stuff. Um, people in the DC media even saying like you're choking somebody in your place of work. How is this an, a felony? Get that guy in some <laughs> silver bracelets. <laughs> but then the anonymous vitriol trickling out of the Nationals locker room uh, and also some of the, like the old school sports columnists in other cities, including this one guy, the Kansas City Star, who said uh, maybe Bryce Harper needs to be choked. Maybe he's the sort of person who needs to be choked. And people in baseball talking about the unwritten rules of the game and how you know, Papel Bond's a veteran who's played won a World Series and he has the right to put Harper in check. No. The biggest critique these behind the scenes folks have given to Papel Bond is to say that he should have done it in the clubhouse and not in full view of the cameras. That's the only thing they'll give him. Now I spoke to a Tom Thomas about this earlier in the day, and one of the things he said was, Look, it's not a typical workplace. It's a sports workplace. You know, I got in fights. I've seen everything in my career, choking, wrestling, all that stuff. And you can't say that this is that the that this is different or new. The only thing that's really different is that it happened in public. But coach, you've coached, you've refed. What's your reaction to what took place? I don't I don't agree with all that stuff about Bryce deserved it and he's a brat and I heard some of that stuff. Um Papelbon came with a rep as being a, a, a surly dude. A meathead. Okay, I don't know about that. And I'm, and I'm curious, and maybe maybe Dan can get it while we're talking, what the record has been since he joined them? Because I, I bet it's 500 or less. All I know for sure is that they were leading the division. Right. And Drew Storen was the closer right. and having a hell of a season. 29 right. saves and 31 attempts. Right. ERA under two. Right. But there was this belief that Storen was somehow cursed because he'd blown saves in the two biggest games in Nationals history right. in right. the playoffs. And right. so they thought they were going to win the division no matter what, even though they had a small lead at that time. Right. And they were just like, Papelbon is going to be what pushes us over. But what it did instead was completely rock the confidence, change the chemistry of the locker room because Papelbon's a big presence. Exactly. He hasn't pitched that well. Yep. He has an ERA over three. But, but here's what I saw. I saw him, him, he's got the rep, he's a tough guy, he's, he's 6'4", 225, and all this kind of stuff. I think and Bryce, fight, Bryce basically, would kick his ass. Though. Right. And I, and I think, you know, instead of, Bryce didn't take it like a little puppy and just said, oh, okay, I hear you. He kind of said, there was reports that Bryce kind of looked at him, let's do it. Yeah, let's go. Said, yeah. And I think Papillon was stuck like, oh, don't you know, I'm the bully on the corner and you stepping to me? And he kind of lost it from that tone to what I saw, right? And then they got in a scuffle and he reached for his neck. And um, and turn around when he broke it up. I think Papelbon said the look that once Bryce was was got by um, the shortstop. I'm drawing blank his name and turned away. Papelbon had a look on his face like, "Wow, he went after me!" Like, I, I'm the bully, and I got no, called people, out. People don't break that up. I mean, Harper was about to like be on top of him, and- right? Now, and here's and here's the other thing about that. Um, I think it might have had something to do when Papelbon beamed. Danny uh, Machado. Machado. Yeah. Bryce, uh, uh, you know, didn't didn't support it the right. next day in the paper. Bryce said, "Now what I'm going to get all hit. about yeah, now, yeah. yeah, I'm going to walk him tomorrow, and they're they're going to bean me." And said, "This is this is nonsense." And I'm you know, and so and again, and then you know, so here's Papelbon, and again that chemistry thing, saying, "Well, whoa, 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 I'm a bad dude. Everybody knows I'm a bad dude. Here's here's the million dollar kid and a youngster done nothing. All these MVP 
calling me out and basically saying my move th- hitting him was wrong and saying I'm going to take the brunt of that, meaning Bryce is going to get hit. So maybe that's some carryover started there. You never know. This stuff didn't come out. But I just see, you know, as a bully got called out and he choked that man. I don't know. You're going to talk about your, your Sprewell comparison. I don't see that at all. He should have been gone. Uh, well, he's been suspended from the team. Only because it was only with three games left. That should have been a major suspension. I don't care. You went and choked the man. They got to figure out a way to not have Papelbon come back next but he, year. But he's 16, he's owed 16 million. They owe him 11 crazy million number? dollars. 11? Okay. Yeah. When Papelbon did arrive, uh, since then, the Nats are 28 and 32. Okay. Okay. That's embarrassing. Yeah, that is. That is. That is. Because he was supposed to be the last. They're fifty-two and forty-six when they got him. Right. Not only yeah. the closer, the solidifier. Oh, we got, we got our closer. Here we go. We're gonna overtake the the, the, the kids in the Bronx and or Mets, and let's go ahead and get this thing done. That would be Queens. Have, Queens. I know. Your, your utter ignorance yeah, yeah. of New York City uh, is a know. common all, theme. On all this I know, show. you were a five-nine center. That I, I, I never been able to get past From that. Staten Island, <laughs> and I'm five-ten. <laughs> Listen, the part though, Coach. Yes, sir. That. I think is interesting beyond all this unadulterated crap about like the rules of the game and all the rest of it is the double standard we have when you have what I will call white on white violence. It's the difference. You said it. I thought it, but you said it. No, I said, look, (laughs) look, when white players get in these kinds of situations, Jonathan Papelbon may be called a meathead idiot bully. Bryce Harper may be called a prima donna brat. But if you notice, the criticisms are individualized. It's about what's wrong with the character of Bryce, what's wrong with the character of Papelbon. When Ray Rice horrifically hits Janae Palmer or when Michael Vick fights dogs, I mean, name the scandal involving a black athlete, it becomes a black issue. How it's discussed. The blame is collectivized. It's put on the shoulders of an entire community. And that's how, I mean, that's how institutional racism works. That's how the Mm. psychology of racism works. Mm. Failure is collectivized. While if you think about it in the black community, much more than the white community, one person's success is looked at as an individual triumphing Mm -hmm. over the odds. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'll give you one example is uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has had this terrific success recently. And every time people talk about him, they talk about it as if it's like he he dragged himself up by his finger. And it's like his parents were like incredibly bright. I mean, incredibly bright. They were very political people. He was raised with books. He went to Howard University and he took those opportunities and he Mm -hmm. did this Mm -hmm. because he was from a culture of learning. But this idea of that there is might be a culture that breeds success is something that is left out of the narrative when it comes to black communities and particularly black athletes. So I think you see the racial double standard at play in how this is discussed, this kind of bros will be bros, dudes will be dudes approach. Okay, that's interesting because you – so wait a minute. Are you, cause when you said Rice versus Janae, that's domestic violence hitting a woman, woman. Yeah, I'm talking about the reaction. I'm not comparing right. what took place. I'm talking about the reaction. Right, the reaction. But, I, I, but I'm trying to do an apples-to-apples comparison of, of, a, of a black-on-black uh, 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 scuffle in the dugout or in the locker room or on the field that was carried to that level of – you know, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just trying to do an apples to apples comparison because that was a teammate on teammate in the locker room in front of the cameras. I don't think when when a uh, couple black athletes go go at it, it's a racist, uh, hereditary, generic thing. You know, inbred thing, whatever. Some of the words. 
Um, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I hear what you're saying. I mean, the thing that just flashed into my head was Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning slugging it out with man, those That was heat. on the court. That, I mean, that was, that was on, on the court in the heat of battle. And, yeah. I, did, did I, and I'm asking, did that carry over to where, where to what you're saying? Did you see well, that? Yeah, as? I mean, in terms of how the teams are discussed, like thuggish and all the rest of it, I thought but there they was were. a lot of That's code. how they played. And that, 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 wasn't, wasn't Nick's all about that? I mean, they yes. had... Uh, that's true. I just that think some of the, phrase, the some of the phraseology. Right. I, I don't hear hockey players called thuggish. Is what I'm saying. Like oh, there's I do. A, I do. You hear them called thuggish? I hear them called enforcers. That's the language. Uh. They're enforcers, <laughs> which has almost a noble sound. No, I, no, I've heard. Th- I've, I've, no, I've heard. No, I've heard thugs. Hmm. Look times. at you standing for the status quo. No, I, I'm just. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Look, you, I hear what you're saying, but the Spreewell thing I think is interesting too because one of the things that it also reflects to me is the way in which there's a prejudice in sports against youth and Mm. a deference to authority that speaks Mm. to how autocratic sports can be. Because Mm. one of the horrors of Sprewell and P.J. Carlissimo, there was definitely a lot of racial stuff that came out after Mm. that. But one of the things about it that the memory of it from 1997, it's been a while, but the idea that someone would attack their coach. Right. Right. was seen as like right. crossing a line that you just do not cross. Right. But the idea of attacking some 22-year-old whippersnapper, that's almost seen as noble in some quarters, a 34-year-old Papelbon going after the 22-year-old. And I think it has a lot to do with we criminalize youth in this culture. We mm. do. There's a, a school-to-prison pipeline. Right. And this idea if you're young, you somehow need to be corrected, right. and age somehow necessarily brings with true. it wisdom. No question. And that speaks to autocracy, because what is autocracy? It's we're not going to brook any dissent, very top down. I think mm. that's you see that here. And see, and, and that speaks to P- Pablo Bond, you know, why he was, what? you? Let's do this. Yeah. What do you think you're talking to? But why is Bryce such a bad guy? I, I but mean, that, he, I don't get it either. But that's yeah. part of the thing, too, which is so funny to me. It's like, here's Papelbon. He's 34. He's been with the team half a year. He's played Less pretty crappy. Yeah. And here's Bryce Harper, the only person on the team who showed up every damn day yes. and played his butt off. Yes. Hard. And somehow he's the punk. Yes. He's the brat. And yeah. Papelbon is the old school lunch yeah. pail guy. Why is that? For one simple reason. Because Papelbon is old. And age somehow gets a respect in this world that it shouldn't get. Let's judge people by the content of their character, not how many rings they have around the tree. Since I'm older than you, man, we have to continue this session another time. Hey, we got to go break right now. (laughs) We'll be back after this with Richard Lapchin. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. When we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach, Kevin McNutt. How are you doing, coach? Doing well, Dave. Doing well. I'm so excited for our next guest. He is a human rights activist, pioneer, and an internationally recognized expert on sports issues. He's a scholar, he's an author, and he's the chair of the internationally recognized DeVos Sport Business Management Program at the University of Central Florida's College of Business Administration. So proud to have him on the show. His name is Richard Lapchick. Dr. Lapchick, how are you doing, sir? Proud to be on your show. Oh, really happy to have you here, and I wanted to, to have you on as soon as I read your uh, piece in ESPN about somebody who I've always found incredibly fascinating and interesting, um, the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, can I just ask you first, what, what inspired you? You've known the man for decades. What inspired you, though, to write this piece? There was a piece in the New York Times Magazine um, that, that disturbed me because it, it kind of it was entitled What You Don't Know About Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but it really didn't do anything besides 
reinforce uh, a lot of stereotypes about cream. It didn't go into any depth. Um, it presented what I thought were some misconceptions uh, and out-of-context comments, and it made me want to uh, just talk about the cream that I know and have known for 56 years now. Yeah, the New York Magazine story, it presented him as very intelligent, uh, very erudite, and also almost painfully aloof. And that's just, that's not the Kareem that you know you're saying. Not only did it present him as an intellectual, but I thought it made it seem like it was almost a negative that he was an intellectual. Mm. Because he wouldn't talk about basketball, which is apparently what the writer wanted to talk about. And I've, you know, all these years I've known Kareem, one of the things that I most appreciate about him is that uh, because of the depth of his intelligence and interests, um, he always wants to talk about what's going on in society and not about basketball. I mean, he played basketball intensely for as long as he did, and obviously he was one of the greatest players to ever play the game, but he was always much more interested in what's going on in society and making society better and, and live up to kind of democratic promises that we make in America, but sometimes particularly with communities of color don't deliver on. You know, I think what what fascinates me about Kareem also is over the last, say, four years, he has made this pivot towards using social media and and finding space to write very, very sharp 800, 900-word columns where you often see tweets and messages where people say, the best thing written about Ferguson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The most incisive thing written about Trump, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like really lapping a lot of the pundits out there. And it it, it reminded me of, of that, that quote from Gay Talese who said that Kareem once said that he wanted to be a sports writer after retirement. I mean, he really does have that ability to, to punch home a, a point. It, it's impressive. Well, and it's also why I wanted to write this piece now is because he's really been positioned uh, because of the writings, uh, particularly in Time Magazine and the Huffington Post and all of his commentaries on television, as a kind of go-to person on social justice issues. And he always was one, but now I think he's being uh, kind of in the public view as somebody who can really comment intelligently on things that are important. But you should correct me if I'm wrong about this. My perception is that when Kareem was a player, particularly in the late 70s and 80s, um, mid to late 70s and 80s, like he felt a little bit burned by his experience, late 60s, early 70s, and was, was more quiet, was not eager to speak about uh, the, the social positions that he'd staked out in the late 60s. Well, I think a lot of athletes uh, saw what happened to athletes who did speak out and saw how they were uh, punished by the press, sometimes had their careers shortened, and Kareem went way out in front with right. cover stories in Sports Illustrated and his stand on the Mexico City Olympics and becoming a Muslim. Um, you know, he and he had the media distance itself from him to some degree during that period of time. So I think you're right uh, that he kind of was a little more quiet on social justice issues. Uh, but I think that he's reached the point in his life that he realizes that people are actually going to listen to him. Uh, he's got that platform because he was not only uh, a great basketball player, but people are now recognizing uh, how sm- smart and insightful he is. 
Now, I know you wrote about it, and I, I will direct people to the column, but it would be great if you could uh, tell, tell our listeners exactly how you first met Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and how you first built that friendship, because I, I thought that was, I'll just say I just thought that was a very Richard Lapchick story, but I think it also <laughs> says a lot about Kareem that he uh, responded to you uh, the way he did. Well, I was recruited um, by a guy called Jack Dunahue, who was the uh, head basketball coach at a school called Power Memorial in the 1960s. And it was a powerhouse team that became the dominant high school team when the then Lou Alcindor uh, agreed to go there. And I I didn't go myself. I went to a different school, uh, but I went to a basketball camp that Jack Dunahue was starting uh, in the summer of 1961. And at that camp were five white guys and a black guy, all of whom were players at Power Memorial and myself. And one of the white guys was just dropping the N-word on the black guy from the beginning of the day to the end of the day for the first few days at camp, and I finally challenged him. And that guy, who was significantly bigger than I was, literally knocked me out cold. Well, the black guy was Lou Alcindor, and... A lifelong friendship began after that, and, and it's funny because Kareem didn't know uh, that that had happened until years later. Mm. Uh, but then he found out, and uh, you know, the rich friendship began then that that remains so uh, strong that to to this day, I was scheduled to have surgery three years ago, and Kareem flew to Orlando to be with me uh, when I wow. on the days I was supposed to get out, and Kareem asked me to be one of the speakers when they unve- finally unveiled his statue at the Staples Center. Wow. The uh, coach has a question. Hey, uh, Doctor, Kareem did not, uh, Lou Ausler, didn't respond because why not? He didn't want to fight or he just was, why, why didn't he react? Do you think he did not react? And You did, but he didn't. I think he was in an awkward, outnumbered situation. I think he was probably concerned what uh, the, his basketball coach would do if, if he reacted. Um, you know, it was at a time that he he was deep in thought about the civil rights movement because it was just you know it was a powerful historical force at that during that period of time, and I think he was wrestling with himself as he revealed in Giant Steps later yes. his own his own autobiography mm-hmm. about what you know what would become the basis of of his own belief system and how he was going to be a part of trying to bring about change. But I think at age thirteen or fourteen he probably didn't know that and wasn't sure what to do. Mm. You know, I think one of the hidden parts of sports politics history is the role uh, that Kareem played and was willing to play with the Olympic Project for Human Rights in the 1968 Olympics. Um, When I did the the book with with John Carlos, Mm -hmm. uh, that became just readily apparent. Can you speak a little bit about that and and your thoughts at the time? Because you were in some of these meetings in 1968 with the Olympic Project for Human Rights. What, what, what yeah. was your impression of, of, of the then Lou Alcindor's role in that group? Well, I was proud of him for being in that group, first of all. Um, you know, he was probably the youngest person in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was with the Ali's and, and Harry Edwards and Jim Brown and the kind of iconic mm-hmm. figures mm-hmm. in sport and social justice issues. And there weren't many iconic figures then because there was such a fear of speaking out uh, because of the put looming end of your career if you did, but here was a group of black athletes who were going to get together as a group and become more powerful in the process. And Kareem, of course, uh, ended up not being part of the what became a non-boycott because mm-hmm. the basketball tri- trials were held while the, the boycott was still on. So 
uh, once it was called off, the basketball team had already been selected and Kareem didn't go. I don't know whether he would have gone anyway, but since the other black athletes were going, he might have. Uh, but he was he was out, and I think that one of the, the reasons that Kareem never was presented with the opportunity to be a head coach in the NBA partially was because there were people who were angry at him at that point and and I think looked at those athletes who stood up in what I would call one of the most patriotic acts of all time when Carlos and Smith did what they did and the athletes boycotted. Uh, but there were a lot of people who looked at those athletes as being, quote-unquote, un-American at the time, and they all paid prices. Smith and Carlos didn't get jobs for the six years after uh, mm-hmm. the Mexico City Olympic Games, and they both really struggled. Um, you know, Kareem was such a dominant player that obviously somebody was going to take him and, and win championships because they did. Uh, and it was this, kind of the same with Bill Russell. If Casey Jones, one of his teammates, had written Go Up for Glory in 1965, which was one of the first books to really talk about mm-hmm. race in society by an athlete, I think Casey probably would have been out of the league, but it was because it was Russell who was such a dominant player. They couldn't really do much about him uh, other than let him keep playing. And, and you know, you saw the historic resentment between Russell and the city of Boston yeah. that mm-hmm. last, lasted for decades. Yeah. Coach... So let me let me get this straight, Doctor. You're saying that when Cream was actively saying he wanted to coach, you saying that that did materialize because of '68. I think that was a factor in it. Really, I think his becoming Muslim was a factor. Right, yeah. I know. We, obviously, I, I um, hear you there. I mean, it's it's unbelievable when you think about the number of players with no experience who get who, mm-hmm. who are big names who get mm-hmm. that chance to coach. And Kareem, with all of his wealth, not just wealth of intelligence, but his assistant coaching experience, his experience on the Native American reservation. I mean, just I mean, that that must have stung him terribly, which leads to the question. He's such an an intelligent guy. Do you think that actually it's a blessing that he didn't be able to coach because he's done so much? You know, he's like, okay, this is not materializing. He's done so much with the books and the speaking and where he is today. You know, maybe it was a a blessing in disguise, you think? I think that history will be better served by Kareem as the commentator yes, sir. That's on society yep. than he would have been as a coach. Right. Than we would have been as a society if he coached. Yes. No, that's absolutely right. Hey, Dr. Leptik, I I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't ask you this before we wrap up here. Um, and I'm, this is going to be very self-indulgent to, to, to ask you this. And I'm sorry <laughs> about this. But, but actually, I'm invited this weekend to go to uh, – Speak at the San Antonio Spurs by Greg Popovich, John Carlos oh, and I. No, it's John Carlos and I, and he wants us there to speak about the '68 Olympics. And I'm going to intro Carlos, and he's going to talk to the team. Uh, do you have any advice about how to connect with a group of, you know, average age, 30 year old NBA players, and and talk to them? Cause hey, you, hey, doctor, you won't believe Dave is a kid in a candy store. I mean, he is so excited. He's, he, I, I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. <laughs> help him out, doctor. Please help him out. Well, I I was with John at the Special Olympics this summer, and he told me about this, and he was all excited. And then I was with Popovich in uh, South Africa when they, for the first NBA game there, and he's so very excited about it. I think it's a unique team. It's obviously probably the most diverse team in the yep. history of the NBA. Um, Popovich is, uh, you know, as interesting a coach as, as there is. He, he really cares about issues. So I think uh, just be yourself. I mean, oh. you, you, you were invited because Thank you, of, doctor. Who you, of who you are. Thank you, doctor. Well, Dr. Lapchick, hey, th- thank you so much. I mean, yeah, I'm a little nervous, but I'll pull it together. 
and um, mm-hmm. just try to just say to myself, all right, how can this be any harder than trying to explain it to a group of 211-year-olds in New York City, which I had to do once. <laughs> that, 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 that was scary. <laughs> With about 40 of the meanest-looking public school teachers you've ever seen monitoring them while, while we spoke. That was that, much scarier than this. I know you'll be great. Oh, thanks, Dr. Lapchick. Thanks so much for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. It's always a privilege to be with you. Oh, that's Dr. Richard Lapchick. Yeah, it is our privilege. That is a pioneering human rights activist, a brilliant human being, great writer, and great spokesperson for the cause, Dr. Richard Lapchick. So you had to go to him. You wouldn't believe the brother that sits next to you in every show that told you the same advice. See? Okay. Uh, I mean, honestly, right, get gone. Honestly, man. no. I, I don't. <laughs> I would rather trust Richard Lapp. Yeah, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Like what you said about Bryce Harper and Papelbon, it has nothing to do with race. I'll quote you. I'm post-racial like you are, Coach. Wrong. <laughs> hey, we got to go to break. We'll be back after this to wrap up the show. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio to wrap up the show. No, I'm not going to wrap up the show by talking about the Spurs uh, and going down there to talk to those folks. Although that l- advice from Richard Lapchek was very helpful. I just got <clears> to <throat> keep it cool. And I got as long, His I, advice? It, it helped me forget what Coach said before, which totally undermined my confidence. It made me feel like there was no way I could get through it in one piece. It made me feel kind of like small and insignificant, like... I wouldn't be able to string two words together. Like, I'd be nothing like a little bit of dirt in between Tim Duncan's toes. I said all that. But then I spoke to Richard Lapchick, and it was like, honestly, I felt like a seedling being watered by the tears of God. Tears of joy streaming down the face of God. And they went into the soil, and I grew up from that. And now a new confidence hath been born. That was nice. I said all that. No, 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 no. You said the first part about the toe jam and the the Tim Duncan... Shoot, you know yeah. the the the, yeah. the the finger. Clearly, toes. you hear what you want to hear. Just like I haven't heard you say you're going to pay my man back for losing that, that New England bet. So you know. All right, saying. let's talk about this for yeah, a second. Yeah, uh huh. I don't think you made I it should... on air, so pay it on air. No, we, he gave seven points, I like you, and the Patriots won, won by, by eight. eight. Yeah, it was right. a seven point spread. Patriots beat the. I, I want to make my case. It wasn't a Jacksonville game. Tell them what game it was. It yeah, was it was the, the Bills at, at, at Patriots. Forty Not to thirty-two. Not the game that they scored fifty-one points. No, forty to thirty-two was the final score. And let me tell you something. Dan was tweeting smack throughout the whole game <laughs> when it was like 28 to 7, when 35 the fourth to started, 10. Right when the first qu- quarter started. Just this ream of smack. And then the Bills came all the way back, all gave right. the Patriots a heart attack, and then it was like cut last second. Cut it to five, and then last second it went up to 40 to 32. Right. Given the fact that they got so close to to coming no, all the way back. That's not how bets work. I don't work. think I should have to. Play. Absolutely wrong. I think any you have bookie that would agree with Dan this. and any I bookie, are going to see you in the parking lot. Any now, how about bookie, that? Any bookie would agree with me <laughs> that if you get close to winning, it's like winning. <laughs> no, sir. Isn't that the and rules any of Vegas? Would not even tell you that. All right, I'll. If you pay believe Dan. that? We will. We will see you. Outside hey, after the show. Hey, just call me Jelly because I like to welch. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to welch. Dan's going to get paid, people. You can follow us at I Edge of Sports. For the coach, Kevin McNutt, Dan Baker, I'm Dave Zirin. Go Ravens. We are out of here. Peace. Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.